Good afternoon, and welcome to the news portion of Midday Magazine for Thursday, November 10th. I'm Julie Hersey. Polls closed at 8 o'clock Tuesday night across the state in the midterm election. Poll workers in Petersburg immediately started tallying in-person voting results. The district is waiting on early and absentee ballots. Official results from Alaska's ranked choice voting will be released November 23rd. Rachel Cassandra has local in-person voting results from the Petersburg Kupernoff precinct. This year, Petersburg had high in-person turnout for the midterm elections. That's according to poll worker and inspector Mary Clemens. 861 people voted in person, which is 136 more than the August primary election. An additional 400 were early voters in this week's midterm compared to 213 in the primary. Poll workers said they couldn't estimate how many absentee ballots were cast. In the U.S. Senate race, Petersburg voters supported Republican Kelly Chewbacca with 386 of their votes. Chewbacca is a Trump-endorsed Republican and has worked in the State Department of Administration, the Department of Justice, and for the Federal Trade Commission. Behind her was Republican incumbent Lisa Murkowski with 347 votes. Murkowski has held the Senate seat since 2002. Her father was a U.S. Senator representing Alaska for more than 20 years before that. This U.S. Senate race in Petersburg follows the general state trend. Statewide, Murkowski is lagging behind Chewbacca by a small margin. In Petersburg, Democrat Pat Chesbro trailed behind in third place with 67 votes and Republican Buzz Kelly with 48. In the U.S. representative race, Petersburg supported incumbent Democrat Mary Peltola by a large margin, similar to statewide results. When Peltola was first elected to office this summer, she became the first Alaska Native member of Congress and the first woman to represent Alaska in the United States House of Representatives. In Petersburg, Peltola received 371 in-person votes. Republican Sarah Palin received 288 votes, and Republican Nick Begich received 171. Libertarian Chris Bayh trailed far behind with only 16 votes. In the governor's race, Petersburg's in-person voters strongly favored Republican incumbent Mike Dunleavy. He got 363 votes. Dunleavy has served one four-year term as governor and before that was an Alaska state senator. Behind him, 292 people in Petersburg voted in person for independent Bill Walker. 140 people chose Democrat Les Guerra and 54 voted for Republican Charlie Pierce. Currently statewide, Dunleavy is also leading with 52% of the vote and Guerra is behind him with 23%. For the state Senate seat, Petersburg voted overwhelmingly for incumbent Republican Burt Stedman of Sitka with 601 of their votes. Stedman has been a state senator for 19 years. Republican Mike Sheldon of Petersburg received only 195 votes. Senate seat A represents a geographical area covering most of Southeast. District-wide, Stedman received 68% of in-person votes with all precincts reporting. Sheldon received 31% of the vote. That's a difference of roughly 3,700 votes. Sheldon has run against Stedman several times in past years. In the House District 2 race, Petersburg chose Republican Kenny Carl Scaffelstad over independent Rebecca Hemshoot. This does not reflect district-wide voting patterns. Hemshoot is currently leading the race with over 56% of the in-person vote to Scaffelstad's 43%. 
Petersburg overwhelmingly voted against an Alaska state constitutional convention. It's a question posed to Alaska residents every decade. Over 81% of Petersburg residents voted against holding a convention. This follows general state patterns where 70% of Alaskans voted no. On even years, Alaskans vote on whether to retain sitting judges. That's required by the state constitution. Petersburg voted by wide margins to keep all judges in their positions. With help from Coast Alaska's Angela Denning, I'm Rachel Cassandra in Petersburg. You can find more information about the House District 2 race on kfsk.org. And here's how some local voters felt at the polls on Election Day. Over the last three weeks, three Juno homes have burned. Dan Jager is Juno's fire marshal. He says the fires are not connected and there's no evidence of crime. But there is a common thread using heaters for the first time with the onset of cold weather. It's been definitely busy around here as far as fires go. He says that's typical for early winter. In late October, a duplex on Wood Duck Avenue in the Mendenhall Valley caught fire. The fire was traced to an electric space heater. In early November, separate fires destroyed two homes in the Sprucewood Mobile Home Park, also in the valley. One of those was attributed to a wood stove, and the other is still under investigation. Sometimes the systems aren't, um, haven't been inspected or, you know, really up to par. Um, sometimes it's user, user error. Jager says it's important to make sure any heat source has three feet of clear space around it and is maintained regularly. Electric space heaters should be turned off when no one is in the room with them. Two fire stations in town offer wood stove chimney brushes that residents can borrow. But Jager also recommends that residents have professionals come to their homes and check out their heating elements. Finally, he says it's important to keep house numbers visible in case of emergencies, especially as the snow starts to accumulate. On Prince of Wales Island, an important food source is disappearing. For years, populations of Sitka black-tailed deer have slumped, leaving residents without a staple source of protein. A three-day summit held in Craig last month prompted lengthy discussions about the problem. Reagan Miller was there and reports scientists have a few theories about why deer populations have declined. It's Saturday afternoon, and 30-odd biologists, residents, and local leaders are walking along the Looping Harris River Trail, 20-odd miles east of Craig, the biggest town on Prince of Wales Island. The 2022 Unit 2 Deer Summit was a three-day event that packed the Craig Tribal Hall with representatives from wildlife agencies and conservation groups, as well as interested locals who wanted to share their opinions. The Harris River Walk capped the summit. It was meant to drive home the theories presented for why the island's deer population is plummeting, such as poor habitat management and a legacy of clear-cut logging. When loggers cut down a section of old-growth Sitka spruce, hemlock, and cedar in the Tonkas National Forest, there's no need to replant. Trees grow back on their own. And while that sounds like a good thing, it can wreak havoc on the food web. U.S. Forest Service wildlife technician Ray Slayton stops to take in the sights. He points to a stand of trees packed tightly together. It's all natural regeneration from a clear cut in 1960. He points to the forest floor lined with dead leaves, sticks, moss, and dirt. What you see is there's no forage for deer at all. It's what scientists call an even-aged forest. When trees all start growing at the same time, they create a dense canopy that prevents light from reaching the ferns and berry bushes that black-tailed deer love to snack on. And because the trees grow close together, they end up long and spindly, not the massive, thick, tight grain trunks that make old-growth lumber so highly valued. One big way to address the problem is by cutting down some immature trees to open up the canopy. 
It's called thinning. Mike Sheets from the U.S. Forest Service explained on the walk that half the trail has been thinned in various ways. Some stands were cut in a kind of herringbone pattern, while others were thinned near the top or the bottom. This was all done to try and encourage more foraging opportunities and open up travel corridors for deer. Habitat loss is one of the major theories for why deer have been disappearing from the island. Back at the Craig Tribal Hall, biologist John Schoen from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game told summit attendees that old-growth forests are a key habitat for deer. He says old growth keeps too much snow from accumulating on the ground and provides plenty of food beneath the trees. But second growth is another story. Without management, there's little to feed deer. Jim Bachdell is the regional coordinator for the Mule Deer Foundation. He says forest managers need to prioritize habitat restoration. What we need most now is a commitment to eradicate large-scale restoration of habitat, a focused habitat fix in the right places. He says strict management of young growth is essential. He said managers should use radar to determine where trees need to be thinned. And he said that the Forest Service should figure out how to make thinning an attractive business proposition for loggers. But habitat loss isn't the only theory. A number of factors are thought to be at play, including the management of predators. As one attendee put it, Wolves and weather and habitat and hunting. Kind of sums up a lot of it. Ecology professor Sophie Gilbert presented data that showed it could be due to how aggressively black bears prey on fawns. In one study, Gilbert says her research shows that black bear will kill 50% of fawns sometime within their first two weeks of life. Black bear Gilbert also said that harsh winters, known as killing winters, can quickly cull a deer population. She says there hasn't been a killing winter since 1976, but some attendees worried climate change could cause problems. One of the most popular theories among Prince of Wales Island residents is that wolves are behind the drop in deer numbers. Craig's mayor, Tim O'Connor, says wolves need to be thinned out. State wildlife officials estimate that somewhere between 100 and 200 wolves live on the island. But O'Connor says that's a substantial undercount. He says based on what local hunters bring back, the real number is somewhere around 700 or 800. Ross Dorendorf is the state's Department of Fish and Game area biologist. He says Prince of Wales Island's wolves prey primarily on deer. It's more than half their diet. He says deer can be a safer option for a hungry wolf than taking on a goat or a moose. There's different challenges for a wolf in going after these critters. A moose is a lot bigger requires a certain skill set to not be kill yourself when you're trying to eat that animal. They can stomp you. They're pretty dangerous. And then other challenges for a mountain goat might be really steep terrain. You're running after it, you fall off a cliff. Well, that's not very good. But he said there's more to study to understand what role wolves play in the declining deer population. The meeting wasn't meant to end with a plan to fix the problem. Organizers pitched it as a place to voice concerns and opinions and learn more about the issue. Some attendees suggested cutting back on old-growth logging. Others suggested thinning out predators and cutting deer bag limits. But one thing is clear. There are no easy answers. Reporting in Craig, I'm Reagan Miller. Trappers will have 30 days to harvest wolves on Prince of Wales Island starting November 15th. The decision follows intense public criticism hurled at the state's Department of Fish and Game last week. Trappers delivered hours of testimony in support of a longer season and accused the department of mismanaging the island's predator population. From 1997 until 2019, state officials set a quota 
for how many wolves could be harvested in a season based on population estimates from the year before. Now Fishing Game sets open trapping periods based on estimates for how many wolves will remain after the season. The goal, goal set by the Alaska Board of Game is to keep the overall population at a sustainable level, somewhere between 150 and 200 wolves. The department estimates that somewhere between 65 and 99 wolves will be trapped this season. The figures based on the annual harvest rate, the number of wolves taken each day of the season. And as of last fall, there were an estimated 268 wolves on the island, and that is a drop from 386 in 2020 and 316 in 2019. And that's it for the news portion of Midday Magazine.